Please open your Bibles to Malachi 2. We're starting at the end of Malachi 2 and going on to Malachi 3 today. Mallory O'Hare was perhaps the most famous atheist in our contemporary thinking, certainly perhaps the most famous American atheist that we could think of. She did all kinds of outlandish things. One night, Ms. O'Hare stood on the lawn of her Baltimore, Maryland home in a torrential rainstorm and shook her fists at God. With streaks of lightning flashing across the sky, she screamed obscenities at God and dared Him to strike her dead. When the lightning did not reduce her to a cinder, she turned to her family who had witnessed the spectacle and gloated at having proven that God does not exist. People have all kinds of ways to uh, criticize God, to attack God, to try to defame God. And one of them is a common thought even today that we're going to come to in Malachi 2, 17 and on into chapter 3 as God answers this question. And the criticism goes something like this. If you are such a great God, why is there injustice? Why do the wicked prosper? The scripture says elsewhere. Follow as I read from Malachi 2, verse 17. <clears throat> For those of you that are new to our study of Malachi, in the book of Malachi, the prophet is, sometimes he writes as though God himself is speaking in an interchange with the people of Israel. And this is one of those spots when he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied Him? In that you say, quote, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, here's another way that you say it, Where is the God of justice? Behold, here's God's answer, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will come suddenly, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like the launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. The first thing that we understand here, that we learn about, is God's fatigue. <laughs> God says, you have wearied me. You want me to put it real plain? I am tired of you. I'm tired of hearing it from you. I'm tired of listening to your complaints. You ever think of God getting tired of listening to complaints? Somehow we think he's, he's got like a big billboard over his head that says, complaint department, you know, bring them on. You know. Are you happy when people come to you complaining about things that aren't true, aren't right? And neither is he. You ever heard this phrase? Go ahead and give it to God. He's got big shoulders. Well, what you're going to learn today is, don't you do it. Because although God has big shoulders, he is not interested in you railing on him when you are not doing so righteously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And now these people say back to him, what are you talking about? 
And here it is. They had this common conception of where is the God of justice? Now, their situation, for those of you, again, that are new to the study of Malachi, the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament did not follow God. They did not follow what He asked of them. And so He disciplined them in that He let them be conquered by other nations. They are taken captive and eventually they were allowed to return after 70 years to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to reinstitute the worship of God. And they're right in that time frame of coming back and rebuilding and they're looking around saying, we are living in a shambles and look at how these ungodly people are living in their palaces. God must think they are good people. Real bottom line for these people is they looked at their life and they said, I am not getting what I deserve. Have you ever said you deserve better? That's what they were saying. And of course, there was this giant blind spot, which is that they were living in sin. They were getting divorces in an ungodly fashion. They were marrying ungodly people, which they should not do. They were looking at the whole worship system and saying, we're tired of worshiping God. We have to bring the sacrifices day after day after day. All this stuff is going on, and yet they have the audacity to look up into heaven and say, how come you're not treating us like we deserve? God says, you want justice? I'll send you some justice. <laughs> you ever said that as a parent? You want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. God says, here's a promise. I am going to send the person of justice. He will come and he will bring justice. The answer to their question starts out in chapter 3, verse 1. He said, behold... I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, before God. And then the Lord, that is another name for the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord whom you are seeking will come. God promised the person of justice when he said, the Lord whom you are seeking. Now, what does it mean that they were seeking this person of justice? Well, if we turn to Daniel 9.24, we'd read this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, that's the people of, of God, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The word anoint there in the Old Testament literally means to, to put something on or to place on it was a sort of a double reference to two things. Number one, when they chose somebody for a special task, like a king, what did Samuel do when he went to pick David? When he found David, he said, David, bend over, and he poured oil on his head. He anointed him with oil. The anointing with oil in the Old Testament was an indicator that God had already anointed or chosen this person for a special task. So when we read about anointing the most holy, it is perhaps to our modern day imagery of, of, uh, of uh, the coronation of the king. When the king sits on the throne and they say, you are the king. The word anointed comes into our English usage in the church as Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. And it comes into the New Testament in another way we'll look at in just a minute. In Daniel 7, we also read this. I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That's another title for Jesus Christ. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, as God the Father, and brought him, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion, or rule, authority, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That is the person that the people of Israel were looking for. They said, 
all these other nations treat us bad and they conquered us and they're living in all this. We want the big deliverer to come. We want the Messiah. We want the anointed chosen one of God. The Old Testament, he's called the Messiah or chosen. In the New Testament, the Greek word Christ or Christos is the equivalent word. When you say Jesus Christ, you are saying this person from Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh is the anointed chosen one of God. God says in Malachi 3, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord, the Messiah, the anointed one whom you seek, he will come. Now we have to do something just a little bit theological here. Ah, we'll do that in a minute. We have to do this a little bit theological too. I want to talk about the Lord's coming and I want to give you kind of a snapshot here of the Lord's coming. And here's what I mean by snapshot. <laughs> oh, Malachi's day. We have a timeline for today's purposes that starts at Malachi's day and it's going to go all the way to eternity. The first coming of the Messiah was when the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on human flesh. The word we use is incarnation. It literally means to be in flesh. Sometimes we say, we talk about the birth of Jesus. And we need to be a little bit careful because here's the deal. Some people think the person of Jesus began existing on the day he entered the human race. And the person... The second person of the Trinity has existed since before time began. But at a point in time that we call Christmas Day, he came and took on a human body and a human nature. And the, we call that the incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah. That is his first coming. Right here, God says, you folks want justice? I'm going to send the guy. And here it is. Jesus came into the world, took on a human nature, and when it got to be the right time, the messenger spoken of here in Malachi 3 assumed his responsibility. How do I know that John the baptizer was this messenger? Because all four Gospels quote this scripture and say, here he is. And what did John do? John came along and said, repent. Give up your sinful ways. And then when he saw Jesus coming, literally walking down the road, he said, Hey, everybody, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was the, the introducer of Jesus, the, the front man, the opening act, to put it very crudely in our common terms. And he pointed everybody to Jesus. He had a very brief ministry, and then he was killed because of the preaching that, that uh, he gave. He is the messenger spoken of here. Then Jesus carried on his ministry for three years. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. And after a period of days of teaching, he ascended into heaven, the ascension of Christ. That At that time, this age in which we are living began, the church age. God does not tell us how long that age is. He tells, it, he tells us it will end when he comes and calls all of his children off the planet on a day that we refer to as the rapture. That's a, that's a Latin word that means to be caught up. And those are the literal words of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, we will be caught up to meet him in the air. And after that time, we don't know exactly how quickly, but fairly soon after that, will come the time that Daniel was writing about when he talked about the Messiah coming. The time called Jacob's trouble. We commonly refer to it as the tribulation. What is the purpose of the tribulation? We read about it from Daniel when it says this, 70 weeks, and it's talking about time frames of years. This time frame is determined to put an end to the sin of the people of Israel. What is the chief sin of the people of Israel in the day of Malachi as well as today? They don't fully embrace God. They don't fully embrace God. And during that seven years, there's going to be a wholesale, national, huge revival among God's chosen people, the Jewish people. There's going to be, I don't know how many, but large numbers of them turning and getting saved during that time period. 
And when that time of God pouring out his wrath on mankind, in fact, the reason he's going to pour out his wrath is to get them to turn around. At the end of that time period, this messenger is going to come. The, the second coming of Christ, Jesus Christ himself personally is going to reign on the earth. And this description we hear here is going to be fulfilled completely. At the end of that thousand-year time, there's going to be a final rebellion. Scripture tells us that Satan will be chained up for those thousand years. He will not be loosed to roam the earth as he is now. Scripture says he roams throughout the earth seeking whom he may devour. He will not be able to do that during the thousand-year reign of Christ. He will be chained up. There will be people born during that thousand-year reign of Christ who may choose not to become believers. They will have to follow justice because Jesus will mete it out. But they may choose not to be believers. And at the end of that time frame, Satan will lead them in one last great rebellion, which Christ will put down completely and thoroughly, cast all unbelievers into the lake of fire, along with Satan and the wicked angels. And we will enter the new eternal state, the new heavens and new earth. God's going to wipe away this current one with fire. First Peter, or Second Peter 3 tells us. And he's going to create a brand new heavens and a new earth. And if you think this one was beautiful, you're going to get to see what God can really do without the influence of sin on our planet. Now, why do they give you all of that? In the Old Testament... God did not see fit to tell the prophets the exact detailed story because Malachi doesn't know anything about that church age. And so Malachi looks down through time by God's inspiration and he says, my servant is coming and there's going to be justice. There are some people who would say, Jesus came and now we're living in the kingdom. I would simply ask you this. Are we living in a just world? Do you read the paper and come away going, boy, I'm sure glad everybody gets what they got coming to them. No. And that is one of the simplest proofs, and as far as I'm going to go, to say no. Jesus came, but because of all of the things that happened, including the rejection by the Jewish people, he said, we're going to have something different right now. Gentiles, non-Jewish people in large part are going to come to faith in me and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to work on my people. I'm, I'm in the tribulation time and at the end of that, I'm going to come sit on the throne of David. Malachi didn't see everything as clearly as we do now. Malachi is in the middle of your Bible. All Malachi knew was Genesis to Malachi. And we have the advantage of having Matthew through Revelation. And so we see the whole picture clearly. Justice is coming. We read about that justice that is coming in the last part of the passage that we've started into. But the thing that we need to understand here right now is the principles of justice. Look at verse 2. In verse 1, he says, look, I'm going to send my messenger, the one whom you are looking for, he's coming. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like, when God uses that word like, he's going to give us a characteristic. He says he is characterized by a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purge the sons of Levi. He will purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Here's the principles of justice that we need to understand. Human righteousness never equals God's righteousness. Or we could put it this way. Human justice never equals God's justice. These people were saying, we're not being treated fairly. We want the Messiah to come and straighten things up. And God says, oh, he's going to come. Well, I'm going to tell you something, folks. When he comes, you are not going to be standing up going, good to see you. Because he's going to make everything right. One of the authors that I read said this, no one 
no one who knew his own sinfulness would call for the judgment of God as being himself the chief of sinners. St. Augustine pictures one saying to God, Take away the ungodly man. And God answers, Which? Which ungodly man? Human righteousness never equals God's righteousness. We, it's real easy for us to look around and go, well, I'm really doing good and I'm doing the right thing. But this guy, this gal, have you ever gotten a ticket? You ever got, raise your hand if you ever got a ticket from the police for driving your car. Okay, great. You, you feel better now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, have you ever done something in which you deserved a ticket, but you didn't? Get one. Yeah, thank you for that witness there, brother. Have you ever done this? You're driving. You're, the one time you are obeying the law. And the guy just goes, zoom, 100 miles an hour right down past you. And you go, well, that guy needs a ticket. But the truth is, you need one too. If you're going to call for justice... You better stop and say, now, wait a minute. You know, I'm not perfect either. And that's what these people were doing. They were living in, in flagrant sin. This isn't some little secret, you know, nobody sees. They were, they were saying, I'm tired of my wife. See you later. They were saying, look at that good-looking woman over there. She's an unbeliever. I'm going to marry her. And they were going after and worshiping her gods. Flagrant sin. And then they go, come on, God, come down here and wipe out all these unbelievers. And God says, you know what? I'm going to send, I'm going to send the fellow that'll do that. But it will not be the way you think because human righteousness never equals God's righteousness. The thing that he goes on to tell us is this. Humans must get their righteousness from God. Look what he says. Who can endure the day of his coming? Verse three. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will purge them. When he talks about the refiner's fire, of course, I, I think this image comes to your mind, but maybe not. When you refine silver or gold, you heat it up. And when it becomes melted or molten, the impurities rise to the top. And then you skim the impurities off the top. Now, how do you get it molten? with fire he said oh he's coming and he's going to sit like a refiner that means he's going to take fire and blast fire and then you're going to be purified Is that what you're after the good news that these people could not understand is this when jesus came in that first coming that first coming he made possible our purification and how did he do it he died on the cross. And His blood took away the sins of the world. And everyone who comes to faith in Christ has their sins taken away. Do you know that if you have put your faith in Christ, you stand before God in heaven absolutely pure? Do you know why that is? Because if that wasn't true, you couldn't go to heaven when you die. And you'd have to follow some other path of getting cleaned up before you're ready to go to heaven no 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 god is taking your sin away completely now do we still have some things we need to work on here in this life yes we do and god is so big he is able to see us positionally perfect and yet practically not perfect and he's helping us to work to to eradicate those sins that plague us in our practice here on earth but he sees us perfect Otherwise, none of us would ever be able to stand before Him and say, knock, knock, let me into heaven. We'd be like these people here. But the, he, what, what, what God through Malachi says, look, this guy's coming and He's going to purify these people. And that purification began at His first coming when He made it possible for their sins to be cleansed. And you know, if you read the book of Acts very carefully, you find a, at least one reference to a place where a sermon was preached and many priests came to faith in Christ. He said, I'm going to purify the sons of Levi. That is the priests. That's, that's who the sons of Levi were. At Jesus' first coming, he made it possible for the sons of Levi to be as pure as gold. 
And at his second coming, which we will look at in a minute, the only ones who will continue on will be those who are pure. We'll look at that in just a moment. What are the purposes of justice? What are the purposes of justice that are enumerated here? Look at verse 3. He will sit as a refiner, the Messiah, or Jesus, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold. Why? That they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Why does God save us? Is it so we won't go to hell when we die? That's part of it. I would tell you today, God saves you, first of all, so that you might offer a sacrifice in pureness. You might purely worship God. You might be able to say, thank you, Lord, whether it's for a small blessing or a large. You might be able to tell your neighbor or friend, look what God did for me. You might be able to worship God. He said, I am going to purify them so that they will offer a pure sacrifice. In this time frame of the book of Malachi, they were coming and bringing the animal sacrifices while they were living in sin. And they even brought sacrifices that didn't meet the qualifications of the Old Testament law. And God said, I'm going to purify them so they will offer a pure or a righteous sacrifice. The second thing that he says he's going to offer, he's going to cause to happen is perfect relationship. Look at verse 5. And I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against all of these things. Why wasn't God giving them justice? Because they weren't living for Him. God made a deal with them in the Old Testament, and here's what He said. I want you to believe in me. I want you to fear me, to respect me, to honor me only. Don't worship any idols. And if you truly believe in me and, and, and worship me, you will follow this system of law. And he gave him the whole 600 and something commandments. And he said, if you will believe in me that much, I will bless you. And he enumerates the blessings in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 7. He talks about... Uh, having lots of children. He talks about having a fruitful farm. Uh, All these kinds of physical blessings. He said, I will take care of you. So why wasn't he taking care of them in this time frame? Because they weren't following him. Friends, I got news for you. If you're not willing to obey God, now we're not talking about earning salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Once you come to faith in Christ, then you stand before God. And if you're not willing to follow him, Don't blame Him for the results. Don't look up to heaven and say, You messed up my life! No, 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 no. Sin has its own natural consequence. God doesn't need to mess up your life. If you choose to live in sin, you will reap the results of that. And that's what these people were doing. But what does He call them to? He says, I am going to purge you, and then we will have a perfect relationship. It's reiterated to us in 2 Corinthians 6.17 when he says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will be a father to you. He says to these people, Come out from among them, be separate, and I will be a judge for you. Perfect relationship. When you live righteously for God, God's going to take care of you. Now, that doesn't mean your whole life's going to be perfect and ease-filled. I'm not saying that. But God's going to take care of your soul. And your body as much as he knows it needs to be taken care of. The third thing that he promised these people was perfect justice. The purpose of this pure, of the overall justice is to get perfect justice in individual events. And one author that I read summarized this list this way. These are the sins he will get rid of. Sorcery, adultery, perjury, and usury. What's usury? Usury is financial uh, victimization. You know, if you go to borrow money and they charge you 25%, we call that user. Well, any, any interest on a loan is called usury properly. But when it's exorbitant, we think of it as usury. And these people were taking advantage of one another. That's what he says right here. He talks about, I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who are lying under oath, those who exploit wage earners. How, did you, how do you exploit a wage earner? You say, come work for me, I'll pay you, and then you don't pay him. Okay, I mean, that's, that's what they did. 
and widows and orphans against whom those who turn away an alien, they were under a legal compulsion to God to take care of, of aliens. People, and, and not space aliens, but, you know, uh, uh, immigrants, immigrants, okay? And then he, he says, I'm going to... I am going to exhibit justice against these people. Can you imagine living in a day in which absolute justice rules? My concept of justice only goes as far as could that lives kitty corner behind me stop barking. But then that guy's saying, would somebody please make that dog with a red collar stay home? But God is going to bring a day when everything is perfectly righteous. Can you imagine living in such a... I can't even imagine it. But that day is coming. And that's what he told these people. This great day of justice is coming. But here's where we come to the moral of the story. Verse 6. And we learn about the character of God. We learn a theological truth, and then we learn a practical truth. The theological truth is called the immutability of God. And I, you know, I've used this word for probably 25 to 30 years since I've, been, since I've gone to school. But this week I looked up to find out what it, what it really means. Why, why do we use that word to talk about the, the fact that God doesn't change? Well, the word mutar is the Latin... Uh, um, the Latin core of this word, and we get our word mutate from it, and it means to change. And so something if something is mutable, it is possible for it to change. If it is immutable, it is impossible for it to change. Let's read verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. I do not change. Look at Psalm 102, 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The psalmist knew by prophecy something that God said later on. He said, this whole world's going to be tossed away. But God never changes God never changes one author put it this way with respect to God's essence attributes moral character and determination to punish sin and reward goodness there can be no variation or inconsistency now has God dealt in different ways at different times with mankind as in he asked them to uh, have animal sacrifices and he doesn't ask that of us yes there have been different ways that God has worked, but His character does not change. Now, why does He bring that up right here? Well, let's look at the application of the theological truth. God applies it Himself when He says this, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Therefore, you're not consumed. In this whole great big plan of God, he said, someday I am going to wipe away the sin of my people. And that time frame starts with the tribulation and, it, and it's completed by the end of the, of, the, uh, of the millennial reign of Christ. These people looked up to heaven in Malachi's day and said, give us justice. If God had said, okay, I'm going to do justice right now. What would have happened to those people? They would have been zipped. They would have been sent to hell. They wouldn't have been zipped. They would have been, their lives would have been cut short, you know, whatever. God says, you know what? You're too stupid to know what you're asking for. And because I am wiser than you, and because I don't change like you do, you're not going to be consumed. What is that? That's grace. They looked up to heaven and said, give me justice. God said, no, no, no. You don't need justice. You need grace. 
you need my son to come and take care of your sins. And you need more opportunities to know me fully and to follow me. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. Try to keep this picture in mind as we think about the coming of Christ, the second coming. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking. Okay? And here's what he says in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. Did Jesus Christ come in glory the first time? No. He came, He's a baby. And then, in fact, later on, you know, he, he grew up, he's from Nazareth. Do you remember when they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Everybody looked at him and said, he's the Savior? He's this guy we read about in Daniel? Are you kidding? No glory. Now, there was some personal glory when people were healed and some of those things, but no big glory. It's one of the ways that we understand that first coming is not the same as this coming here. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels come with Him, man, what in the world would that look like? Then He will sit on the throne of His glory. That's that thousand-year reign of Christ sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. <coughs> All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on and drop down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That judgment happens right at the beginning of this thousand-year reign. When he comes back and puts down this big mess that's going on at the end of the tribulation, he's going to sit on the throne and he's going to judge all of the living human beings and all of those who have put faith in Christ will be on the right hand, and all of those who have not will be on the left. And what happens to them? They go straight on into punishment. When these folks in Malachi's day said, bring on the Messiah right now, if it had been possible for him to come right then, that's what he would have done. And God said, you know what? It's not time yet. I'm going to be merciful and gracious to you. And he's going to come later on. And, and, and those people had opportunity yet to believe in God. And then Jesus personally came and he died. And he made it possible for people to be born again. And he made it possible for not only the Jewish people, but for us Gentiles to believe. In Malachi, God told those people, look. I'm going to send a messenger ahead of time. Why would he do that? Listen, think about this. Matthew 24 said, When I come at that moment, boom, it's judgment time. When he comes at that point, it's judgment time. There's no time to change your mind. And so mercifully, he says, I'm going to send a forerunner ahead of time and give you a chance to change your mind. Friends, I want to tell you today, the forerunner has come. It was John the Baptist. And Jesus came after the forerunner. He died, was buried, and rose again so that we might believe. If you're waiting for some future day, you might wish you had not waited I would also challenge you today with this concept of justice. Years ago, I, I went to a pastor's luncheon, and I was the last guy getting there at a Chinese restaurant. Somehow, I was late. And so I come in. They've all ordered. 
And I got to order real quick. And that was before I was more cosmopolitan like I am today. So I crank open this menu and I'm, I'm scanning real quick. And, you know, like everybody's looking at me because they're waiting for me to order, you know. And, and I go, oh, I'll take that one right there. It looked to me like they had indicated this was a specialty of the house. So I so took one of those. Boom. It wasn't until I was about three or four bites into it that I realized stars on a Chinese menu don't mean specialty of the house. They mean light your mouth on fire. I even ate one of those little red things by accident. I thought I knew what I was asking for. Friends, don't ask for justice. Don't do it. Ask for grace. Ask for mercy. Ask for God to help you understand what He's doing, but don't ask for justice. Heavenly Father, we are so glad You are merciful and gracious. We are all tempted to think that we are poorly treated at times. And we are. But Father, we, we want to live in Your grace. And we even want Your grace to extend to those who treat us poorly because they need You as much as we do. Father, help us not be foolish like the people of Malachi's day. Help us to ask for Your grace day by day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.